College football playoff semifinals were entertaining from start to finish. Out to the KDUS hotline we go. We're now joined the sports on by David Kenyon of Bleacher Report. And David, always good to have you. Happy New Year and all those things we're supposed to say at this time of the year. Uh, let, let's start with the Michigan overtime victory over Alabama. Why did Michigan, after doing almost nothing during the second half on offense, what did they do differently during that final drive of regulation? All of the pleasantries back to you, Bob. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. But, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely an Alabama master class. The Nick Saban that we have come to expect in the second half, Michigan looked in control in that first half and then looked like he could do absolutely nothing in the second half. I, I think it really is simply Michigan got back to finding the little things that they could do pre-snap to frustrate, well, not frustrate, but confuse Alabama's defense, which was not reacting particularly quickly. And then uh, that fourth and two, you saw Quorum kind of leak out of the backfield, and there's absolutely nobody there. And that was a, a trend throughout the entire game um, in, the, in the first half and then late in that portion in the fourth quarter, and then not really in overtime because they just ran two plays and scored a touchdown. But that was the big thing. Michigan had such a good ability to confuse Alabama's defense, force the defenders to make the adjustments on the fly, and it just didn't always happen as well as it needed to. How surprising was that that you know, Michigan was able to confuse Alabama considering you know, Saban's bowl game history and you know, Harbaugh's bowl game history, for that matter, who had, he'd lost six straight until yesterday? Frankly, I was shocked by just how utterly confused Alabama was in that first half because – you saw on Blake Horam's early touchdown catch. Um, you saw on a, a couple other receptions that Michigan had where it was just Alabama was not reacting quickly enough, and maybe they were getting to the right spot, but then they were not finishing in the right spot. I mean, you saw that again with Robin Wilson's tying touchdown in the fourth quarter. Both linebackers flow with, uh, with Horam going across the formation on a play action. And Roman Wilson just kind of scoots out the left side and nobody's reacting until pretty much the ball is in the air and they have absolutely no chance of getting to him. Yeah, also Alabama, they failed to extend the lead in regulation and they failed to win the game after Michigan tied the game and they, uh, with a couple minutes to go. Was there something wrong with Tommy Reese's offensive approach at that point? I don't think there was something, you know, specifically wrong as as far as like oh he he failed in xyz ways michigan's defense is really good <laughs> and we saw that definitely in the first half where other than a a must punt giving alabama that field position alabama really didn't do much I, this was a, simply a case of michigan's defensive front that really front seven plus mike sander still the nickelback is just overwhelming and Alabama's weakness all season, I mean, we talked about it back in October, I think, that Alabama's offensive line was not good early in the year. They were, they were much better late in the season, but this was a problem for Alabama all year, and you can only do so much as a coordinator uh, to atone for it. And once Michigan stopped uh, Jalen Milrow's ability to, to scramble, other than a, maybe three times, I would say, throughout the game, but that was such a big part of Alabama's offense that once that was gone, Alabama was just in a tough spot against a really good team. David Kenyon, a Bleacher Report, currently in the sports zone. So what else stood out to you in that Michigan victory yesterday? 
Well, I think from Michigan's side, the negative, I mean, holy cow, how many special teams mistakes can you yeah. make? You've got the, the muff punt early that leads to Alabama's first touchdown. You've got the mishandled extra point that cost Michigan a point and, you know, not totally causes overtime because maybe the, the game plays out a little bit differently if it's 14-7. to 7. But still, like, that, that's a huge one. And then you have uh, a missed field goal, 49-yarder. It's a tough one from the right hash for a, a right-footed kicker, but still, it's a miss. And then almost at the end, a safety on another mishandled punt. So it was just a, a total meltdown for Michigan special teams. And clearly, with, with how well Washington played last night, you cannot afford to give up, what's that, eight points at the minimum and potentially maybe three, five more we will get to the Alabama and uh, excuse me the uh, the, the Michigan and uh, and uh, Washington game in a minute, couple minutes here. But first up, a little more on uh, Alabama, their first semifinal loss since 2014, first time in nine seasons and no SEC team is in the championship game. Is it good for college football that the SEC is not re- uh, not represented in the championship game next Monday night? I think it's fun. <laughs> I mean. We've seen the SEC in there all the time. So I think from that perspective, you know, you've got the Alabama fatigue, the Georgia fatigue, the SEC fatigue that's no different than, you know, Clemson in previous years or if you go to a different sport, the Patriots or the Warriors. You know, at least from my perspective, it's nice to see some new people in there. Um, But at the same time, is it good necessarily? I mean, if you want to talk about ratings, no, you're not going to have as high ratings if Alabama or Georgia – would have been in it, but, you know, I, I don't care. It, it, it's like baseball this year, too, when people were complaining that, oh, this is the worst, this is the worst World Series and who knows how long, but I'm like, oh, you've got a team that's never won a World Series against a team that hasn't won in two decades? Well, I'm in for that, and hey, Michigan hasn't won a title since 97, haven't won an outright title since 1948. Washington hasn't won since they split with Miami in 91. This is awesome for the sport. Speaking of Washington, they won another close game. Uh, they always win close games for two years running. They never trailed before they held off Texas. How does Washington win all these one-score games? Coaching and resilience. And I, I don't know that you can quantify the second one, but it's a testament to the coaching. But when you look at Washington, as we've done all season, you know, just impressed with how they continue to keep winning, it's because – the entire team is contributing. And I know that's like a basic thing to hear, but this isn't like one of those teams that leans so heavily on its defense. And that's why it continues to, to squeak out wins. Or maybe they're, you know, they're just scoring 45 points a game. And the other team just can't keep up. If you look back through all these wins in particular, you've got like Arizona state and Utah where Washington had a defensive touchdown that really mattered you had the last-second field goal against Washington State. You had the offense doing things like it did last night. But even then, yesterday, you had the last-second stand uh, in the red zone from the defense. So Washington's ability to just believe is, is a culture thing, and that's a credit to the coaches. And then the ability to execute late is a credit to the coaches and, of course, the players because they, they just continue to make the one right play when they need it. Well, speaking of that, Michael Penix Jr. I think most of us saw him play at some point in Indiana. 
his Indiana career, I most remember a game that uh, he was great against Ohio State, but they lost that game in Columbus uh, during the pandemic year. And I never imagined he'd be this good. How has he become this good? Uh, yeah, I mean, living here in Indiana, watching Penix a lot, where you know people are very excited about this young kid, but then keeps getting hurt, and he's hurt, and he's hurt. And Kalen DeBoer had been at IU as the offensive coordinator, and they looked great together. But then, you know, DeBoer had things to check off the list, and, and he headed off. And Penix just wasn't the same. And he, he came back and I was like, oh, that's nice. And I hope Penix stays healthy. But Washington has not played well, you know, in the previous years leading up to uh, 2022. And then suddenly, bam, you've just got this rocket arm that finally is back in the right, comfortable offense and then surrounded by, most importantly, three NFL-bound receivers. I know Jalen Polk isn't going to be there yet, but with uh, Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan, and then Polk, that, that is just an NFL receiving core that Penix has been around in Kalen DeVore's system, which is extremely quarterback-friendly, always has been, but has just been a perfect fit for Penix to get rid of the ball quickly and really show off his awesome touch on the ball because I'm not sure he made a bad pass all night last night. Obviously, we'll watch back through it and see, but holy cow, he was just on fire yesterday. Yeah, Washington's defense, uh, that's been discussed a lot, including by me over the last few months, weeks, etc. How do they do enough to get by? Well, credit to the offense for scoring a lot usually. But, um, yeah, it's it's a really good question. I think if I had the exact answer to that, I'd be in a different job uh, coaching (laughs) on the sideline because, man, they, they just are not that good for stretches of the games. And even if you look at the run defense yesterday in particular, Texas had more than six yards of carry. Like, Washington was not really stopping Texas. But the biggest thing was they limited the big explosive plays because Texas has just ruthless efficiency on offense. But if they start getting those big plays, that's when it starts to get problematic. And you saw late in the game, Xavier Worthy had that, I think, about 30 five to 40 yard catch on the left sideline. And then Jordan Whittington made the big 40 yard catch uh, on that last drive before Washington uh, stood at the, at the last second. But that's when it started to get dangerous where Washington was surviving. They were always just going to survive and need the offense to score 30 some points, but they contained the explosive plays and they just made Texas kind of get down the field, get down the field, get down the field and finish drives. And you had those two Texas mistakes, those two fumbles. Those are absolutely the difference in that game. Is there anything that Texas and specifically Steve Sarkeesian could have done differently for a better outcome for them? I think it's just those those fumbles, honestly, because you had the one in the red zone um, late in the game. I can't remember if that was third or fourth quarter, but you know, late in the game they have that fumble after just ripping down the field. And if they, if they gain about 10 more yards, they're in field goal position. And maybe at that time, because it was early fourth quarter, um, they might not kick the field goal because they were down 13. But if you think about, like, okay, let's, let's play that game. They kick the field goal, and everything else happens the way it happens, which, again, we understand is not necessarily the case. But then that last drive, Texas just needs a field goal to force overtime, and that game could go to overtime too. 
So the, the two big things are just the, the costly mistakes that coaches will always talk about. Got to protect the ball, and Texas didn't do that late. All right, talking with David Kenyon from Bleacher Report. Let's look ahead a little bit to early thoughts on the uh, championship game next Monday night. First up, uh, your early impressions of how the Michigan offense might match up against uh, Washington defense. Yeah, I, that's, uh, that's definitely an advantage as far as running the ball for Michigan. It does hurt to not have Zach Zenter in there, um, All-American guard for the Wolverines. Um, they're not going to be particularly explosive on the ground, most likely, but you saw just how badly uh, Washington was struggling against Texas's running game that I think Michigan is going to be able to control the clock a little bit, which is very, very necessary because they do not want to get a, in a shootout with Washington because I think that one goes um, the Huskies' way, you know, nine out of ten times kind of thing. So I think Michigan's running game is going to be um, – really, really strong, uh, the best the best matchup, I would say, there. Washington's secondary is pretty solid. Um, the movement, I am curious. If it can confuse Alabama, I'm, I'm a little concerned about a Washington defense that has, has some really good moments and some really bad moments. So I think Michigan's offense is going to have the advantage, but it's certainly going to be, be the opposite way on the other side of the field. Okay, so let's get to that. You know, the Washington offense against the Michigan defense, is, is this just kind of a – I would assume a lot of NFL people are very curious to watch the Washington passing game against the Michigan pass rush and pass defense. Yeah, that's the story because you know Washington is not going to run the ball. <laughs> I mean, the, the offensive line is certainly better than Alabama's, but Michigan's defensive front is just so good that I, I find it hard to believe that Washington – will be able to run the ball effectively. But, man, like I said, and like you pointed out there, a lot of NFL people who are very interested because you've got um, the, the three receivers from Washington that we talked about. But then Michigan has Will Johnson, who was a five-star corner. He's 6'2". He's just a big, rangy guy who I imagine he and Odunze will be paired up quite often. But then Michigan also has Mike Sandra still in Nickelback. He's a con- converted receiver played there for three years, but then the last two years has been a nickelback and just excelled there. And so he's, he's going to cover well, but he's also pretty tricky with the blitzes. You saw that a little bit yesterday that uh, Washington's game is predicated on getting the ball out quickly, but Michigan plays with a lot of deception on defense. Um, Jesse Minter is a, their coordinator, and that's a name you should probably know for the future, but they, they do so well. Um, disguising and, and sending pressure or looking man but dropping zone. There was a critical third down they did that yesterday. You know, they, they kind of bait you in what, into what they want you to do. And so that'll, that'll be the chess match that'll be really fun to watch. You mentioned Washington trying to run the ball. We saw Johnson uh, go down. He's been you know, have bothered by this lower leg injury for weeks now. And that happened again at the end of the game yesterday. For the Huskies, does uh, if does his let's assume he doesn't play next Monday night, uh, does uh, how much does that change your opinion, or is that just kind of kind of cement your opinion that they're not going to be able to run the ball at all? I think it probably just cements it to the perspective of we haven't really seen Washington use anybody else. Johnson has carried such a heavy load this season. I mean, if you look at the the backups, Will Nixon, and Tyler Rogers this year, they've combined for 74 carries. Like that's, mm. 
we're, we're talking about a combined five per game. So we simply don't have the evidence of these players. So that, that certainly in some case solidifies it. But I don't think even with Johnson healthy to the point that he was, that Washington was going to be able to do much on the ground. I think you're going to have to see Michael Penix pick up the load a little bit. It was nice to see, you know, kind of some veer concepts yesterday um, that Penix had a, a couple nice runs off of. So I think you're going to have to see a little bit more of that, but you also don't want to be running Penix into that defensive front when you know his arm is going to be what wins or loses you the game anyway. Okay, one final thing, David. Away from the CFP, the other bowl games have been really dominated by opt-outs and transfers. And you know, we had the Georgia 63-3 to destruction of the shorthanded Florida State team. Uh, Ohio State, without a quarterback, couldn't even threaten to score a touchdown in the loss against Missouri. Can college football or can something be done in these non-playoff games to you know, get some interest and meaning into those games? I think there's, there's a lot of things, and this is a long conversation that I would love to have, uh, but I don't want to be on a 10-minute soapbox. I don't think that's good radio. Um, and so I, I think the biggest problem right now is we have all of these, these bowl games where for the last decade, and I don't want to pin this entirely on ESPN because – all media in, in various parts of this, myself included, are guilty of it. But ESPN in particular, because they have the playoff rights, and that's simply why I, I mentioned them, it became championship or bust. You know, 15 years ago, if you made the Outback Bowl, it was still celebrated. You made a New Year's Day game. Like, that was, that was a real goal. And I, I, was, I threw that into a Google search, put it in quotations so I'd get exact results. You had head coaches saying our goal was a New Year's Day Bowl. Like, that was a thing. And now we don't appreciate, you know, Wyoming winning a fourth bowl game under Craig Bowl after no coach in Wyoming history had ever won more than one. We don't appreciate Ole Miss winning 11 games for the first time in program history. We don't have the bandwidth to actually celebrate Missouri getting an 11th win for only the fourth time in program history. Four different teams won a bowl game for the first time in program history this year. That's awesome. These are awesome things. The players care. The fans care. But if we as general media don't say it matters and celebrate that it matters, this is going to continue to happen. And so I think the biggest thing for the bowls, one of the changes I'd love to see is for the NCAA to allow the Bulls to directly pay the players. Because right now that is not permitted. But Hmm. what if the Orange Bowl had a million dollars set aside that it's like, hey, Keon Coleman, we'll give you $200,000 to play in this game. Johnny Wilson, we'll give you $100,000. Jared Verse, we'll give you a half, you know, whatever. Just to make sure you keep those key players in the game because otherwise, yeah. Florida State, I don't blame them. You throw in the context of not making the CFP as an undefeated team, I I don't know what the motivation there is either. So missing 14 starters and 22 players, that's a terrible look. But it's a terrible look for the sport, not for Florida State. This is a sport problem, not not a a team, a culture issue, anything like that. This is a sport the problem has to handle. And 
look, bowl season's going to change. Um, we have to be okay with that. It's certainly not going back to the way it was, but we got to be able to make some tweaks to make it better and, and have some of these key players play in these games and, and bring some value back to the postseason. David, always good talking to you. Thanks. Appreciate your insight as always. Bob, thanks so much. Enjoy it next week. Yeah, you too. David Kenyon from Bleacher Report.